Everybody doing all right tonight? We're basically just covering a book a week right now. We covered Ezra last week. We're going to cover Nehemiah tonight. We are not going to get into Esther yet because we're going to cover it next week. We will cover Esther will be all that we will cover next week. That doesn't give you a, uh, in the Old Testament, that doesn't give you a reason to skip out on starting Job. But Job, we're going to have a few weeks in Job. And so uh, we'll just, we won't touch Esther tonight. We'll pick up Esther next week and do that. And uh, we're still in the midst of 1 Corinthians. I'm sure there's nothing y'all want to discuss from that at all. And uh, so uh, we'll be in Nehemiah tonight. Nehemiah is one of my favorite books. It's one of those books that uh, I have built part of my ministry around, some of the things that are in there. Um, And so uh, I enjoy Nehemiah a lot. Uh, Let's go. Any questions? Nehemiah from start to finish. Alpha, say yeah. He was a good leader. Here's one of the neat things I like about Nehemiah, and this sounds kind of strange saying it, but I like there's no miraculous stuff in Nehemiah. Like there's no, you know, not that God isn't working, and you could say them building the wall is miraculous, but it's through leadership and people being obedient and those kind of things. It's not um, a Red Sea parting. It's just people doing what they're supposed to do in Nehemiah's leadership. But He was definitely a great leader, a great leader. What's that? The wall is pretty amazing, yeah. To see that dedication to it, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There, there, yeah, there, um, there are reasons for that, yes. <laughs> let you, you, you let you determine what those reasons are. The sheep gate, it's, you know, they, they, they named them. It doesn't necessarily mean that that, that was a, a, the only function of that gate. It was just that was a thing. You know, one of the things is they did not have sewer systems. So there were times that things had to be taken outside the city, and there was a particular gate you took it outside the city. So that wouldn't have been the most pleasant uh, smelling portion of the wall. How'd you like to have been the choir that got? Uh, you know, y'all go stand over the dung gate and sing. That's what's that? Why is that, Willer? Yeah, <laughs> he said he's the smallest man in the Bible. He's Nehemiah. Questions or things you noticed? Yes, Eddie. That's a really good question, Eddie. I'm glad you asked that. I don't know. Well, you have to realize that cities then were definitely not as large as cities today, and so a lar- and they were more compact. Um, we, at the end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century, don't realize how automobiles have changed the way people live. Um, you can drive all over the place. Uh, now, in some ways, it has spread us out more. In some ways, it hasn't. There's a new movement to go back to urban centers. But in Jerusalem, everybody would have been really compact. I mean, it would have been right together. When we're in Brazil, uh, we see that, where all the shops are right together and people's houses are right around it, and it's a little community. Um, so I'm not sure the dimensions of it um, or size, Eddie, I can look that up and, and get you some answers. I've I got places to go for it is then and today. Today it's larger than it would. I mean, today they talk about old Jerusalem and uh, or the, the old city, the ancient Jerusalem city, and then what's kind of built up around it. So, Well, yeah, they, they built the walls, and then they would build guard places there for sure where people could dwell and sleep and, and go. Um, but, yeah, it, it wasn't like... Uh, it 
wasn't like you had hundreds of yards between a house and the city wall. They were, you know, you you built the wall. You wanted to be able. Part of the reason they were so compact was they depend on each other. Part of the reason they were so compact was so they could defend it. It's easier to defend. You know, we are not in a good defensive posture right now with the number of people we have here because we're spread out. That's the way Baptist churches are. People don't like to sit next to each other, right? I mean, there's, you know, I don't know if there are smell issues or friendship issues or what, but you like to spread out. Well, if you're in a city, though, and you're trying to defend yourself, you're going to get packed tightly together. You're going to make sure that you're, you're right there. And it's easier to defend, you know, in that day and time with the people they had. It depends on how many people they had, but it, it'd be easier to defend 10 miles of wall than 100 miles of wall. I mean, saying they had 10 miles, but, you know, I mean, you get the idea. It'd be easier to defend smaller than bigger. Other things you noticed, yeah, have the have the room to himself. Yeah, one of the neat things about Nehemiah we see is Nehemiah is the last book of the Old Testament as far as chronology goes. Okay, so history. We're going to read Esther next, and that's the last history book. Job is considered prehistory, um, uh, and so then you get into the, some of the prophets. Even like Daniel is kind of a mix of prophecy and history. But that's before Nehemiah. Nehemiah on the timeline of the Old Testament is the last book we have. And at the end of Nehemiah, what I like is you still have Nehemiah leading. And so you get to the end of Nehemiah, and it says he went away for a while, and he comes back, and these people are doing things they shouldn't be doing. So he throws all the guy's stuff out, and he gets on to the priest, and he, he get you know, let's get back in shape here. Let's get back where we're supposed to be doing and all of that. And he continues to lead throughout. When that lined up what? Are oh, you talking about the books? Yeah, they're, I can tell you why they lined up the prophets the way they did is because they went from basically longest to shortest. I mean, the major prophets are the long ones and the minor ones are the short ones. Um, and they'll get kind of shorter as we go. But, you know, history-wise, they, they pretty much... Uh, they pretty much have li- we've pretty much followed a history. I mean, when you think about it, when we've gone from Genesis to where we are now, there've been, you know, First Chronicles went back and Second Chronicles went back, but we kind of followed a history. Esther um, was a disputed book in the Old Testament for one reason. Anybody know what that reason is? God's name's not mentioned in the book of Esther. But it's very characteristic of a book that ought to be in Scripture. And so that's why Esther's kind of at the end. Daniel was always considered a prophet instead of history, which when you read Daniel, you understand why. There's lots of prophecy in Daniel. And so um, it was kind of a different, it considered wisdom, prophecy, kind of. Daniel's a book has got a lot of stuff in it. So um, there were reasons to it even if we don't have it for Yeah, yeah. Most of the time in the canon, books go from longest to shortest when it's not a historical correction. Even the New Testament, you see that in some ways. The longer epistles, Romans and First and Second Corinthians, and then as you get to the end of the book, you've got the First John, Second John, Third John that are all Jude that are real short. And then Revelation would obviously be the end book. Yeah, they got the two choirs, and I like how... It's not just the choir singing. They've got they're, they're celebrating, right? They're instruments and trumpets and uh, all the instruments David prescribed. They played. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you see, 
the thing, the most impressive thing about Nehemiah is that he got people to buy in. And everybody bought in. And everybody did their part. If somebody had not done their part, they wouldn't have the wall like they did. But everybody did their part, and they just trusted. Now, this is the difficult part, is they trusted that everybody else was doing their part. For many of us in churches, sometimes it's not hard to do our part, but it's hard to trust that everybody else is doing their part. And we like to make sure everybody else is doing their part or talk about how our part is better than their part or how we're doing our part and they ought to be doing their part like we're doing our part. I mean, you know, you get the idea. Now, being realistic, there were days when people were upset about doing their part or upset at somebody else. It wasn't a utopia there. They're working hard. Things are going to get difficult. But for the most part, they did their part, and that's what they did. And they did it with a singular focus. Uh, you know, there's a couple of verses there that I love that, that are just kind of some, some people might consider kind of throwaway verses, but there's that verse there where Nehemiah says, none of us ever went without our weapons. I mean, they were always on guard. They were always diligent not to let anybody destroy the work because they knew that Sambalat and Tobiah and all those people were going to do their best to make sure that Jerusalem wasn't a strong city again. And so uh, there's that great scene in there where they come and they say, hey, come on down. They want to have a, They want to talk with you. I think you're doing a great job. They, they just want to have some conversation. And he says, I cannot come down. I am doing a great work. Why would I leave what I'm doing right now to come down and talk to you? Well, now that would have been a major um, kind of slap in the face of those guys. You're up on a wall. Why is that better than talking to us? But it was just persistence in being vigilant and doing the task. Cliff, from Genesis to where we are now, the great works that happen, all of them end with a statement like that. The reason that they were great is because they proclaimed how great our God is. And when they get done with this, even though there weren't the miraculous, you know, the blocks didn't start stacking themselves on top of each other, right? They just built it. When they get through, they say, man, we did a good job. Look at all the work we did. That's not what they say, is it? It's look at what God did. What did you say? Yeah, that's quick work. You try to get somebody to do construction in 52 days around here of any kind of meaning, right? They still don't know when they're going to open up that, that mall that got flooded. It's been a little more than 52 days, I think. Okay. Well, and, and Nehemiah, here's the thing. And Sue, you kind of mentioned this. Nehemiah came in and did things like they'd never been done. He didn't take... Now, in defense, Nehemiah had been well taken care of by the king that sent him, King Artaxerxes. I mean, it wasn't like he was a pauper, but he wasn't levying taxes on the people. He was making sure the poor were taken care of and they weren't being taken advantage of. And so, and he was just doing the right thing. And so when he came and spoke, the people knew, hey, this is a guy that's out to do the right thing. He's not trying to take advantage of us. He, he's not even taking what he could take. You know, there's an interesting parallel here between him and Paul in 1 Corinthians because Paul in 1 Corinthians will say, I have every right to take something from you, but I'm not. Now, Paul did work a second job, but Paul was also supported by other churches too. It wasn't just... He was just saying, in the Corinth position, I know that that's an issue for y'all. 
I know that's been an issue for you all in the past, so I don't want you to I don't want you to worry about it. Don't send me an offering. Don't 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 take care of my expenses on my missionary travels because I don't want you to be able to say that you well we supported him, he ought to do this. And Nehemiah is kind of the same way. He earned their trust and when he earned their trust and they realized he was looking out for their best interest, which is the issue that most of us have with politicians today, whatever side of the you know, whether they're right wing, left wing or throwing tea in the in the Boston Harbor, right? Part of the Tea Party, but wherever they are, Green Party, reform, whatever they are, we just we want to feel like they have our best interest in mind, not theirs. And that's the way people felt about Nehemiah. That he was doing this for God's glory and God's kingdom and God's work and not his own. Well now he yeah, he ate pretty well and he fed people well. Yeah. Yeah, he wasn't he wasn't taking more than he should have taken, but he yeah. He had feast all the time, but he included other people in that. He he was he was a an even handed leader. He disciplined as well as he encouraged. And here's what I would say about that. What's interesting is he now, before he went back, he was what? He was cupbearer to the king, which was a very important position. It showed that he was trustworthy. Why do we know he was trustworthy? What did the cupbearer of the king do? What was his job? He tasted the wine first to make sure it wasn't poisoned, right? Well, now, are you going to have anybody in that position unless you completely trust them? No. I mean, you, that you want your most trusted person in that position. You're, the person that you think has got your interest thought about the best, that's what you want. It's also interesting, you know, when he goes to the king, the king says he had never seen him down or saddened before. Well, you didn't want a cupbearer that was sad. Right? If he comes in and he gives you a cup of wine and he's sad, well, what's in that wine? You know, I mean, something's going to happen. And so he had this trusted position, but he wasn't a leader there. He wasn't making decisions there. And this burden of God was so strong on his life that even though he wasn't the leader in Babylon, Persia, and all those places. He wasn't the leader with King Artaxerxes. He became that because of the passion God put in his life. And he knew things ought to be set right. And I believe he got there, and Ezra and he had some conversations about what was important. I mean, you get to that part where they get ready to dedicate, and he says, Ezra, it's your turn now. You tell them what we need to know. The wall's built. I mean, they, they work together, but he learned. I believe he learned from Ezra in some ways. And so this passion just built within him, and he did all things for God's glory and God's kingdom and not for his own. Well, and here's the thing, too. It's an amazing thing that they that they just, like I said, did their part and didn't worry about other people's part. What's also neat about the way Nehemiah did that, I can imagine that with grandchildren on their knees 50 years later, people took their grandkids to that and said, this is the part of the wall that I built. This is my part in what has happened. Let me tell you the story of Nehemiah, and let me tell you the story of how our family participated in that. See, that's one of the brilliant things about what he did, is that he encouraged people to do their part, but in doing so, he gave them ownership of what was happening. And so, it became the Nehemiah story got told through families all around, you know. Well, this is the Larson plot of the Dung Gate, right? 
and we got to sign the dung gate, and that may not sound important, but this piece of wall is just as important as any other piece. Because if this piece were weak, then it makes us all vulnerable. And we did our part. And so you don't have any slackers. He, Nehemiah wouldn't have allowed it. He would have, I mean, he found some people that were just kind of slacking and not doing much work, and he said, you can go back to your home. We don't, we don't need you around here. Diane, up at the top. Yes. Who is he, Nehemiah or God? Okay. Yeah. Well, he did. He left his relative in charge, right? Let's go back. Let's go there. Nehemiah, before he leaves, and I may not be able to, f- to find this. Anybody know where it is? If you've got it, yell it out. Yeah, it was the last couple of days. He- here's the thing. He left people in charge. When is it? Yeah, there, sometime before that, he says that when it was completed, I turned it over to, my, to his brother. But I don't remember where it was. Here's the, here's the thing. One of the most dangerous things of leadership always is turning your vision over to somebody else. But Nehemiah, let me look. Look at verse, uh, when you go back to chapter 1, um, he goes to the king and he talks. Um, he goes to the king and talks and he, he give, seems to give. There are many people that see, and I'm trying to find it in here. This idea comes with him. He kind of tells the, the king, says, you can go do this, but um, seventh chapter, second verse. He gets the wall built. He sets the things. And then he realizes, here's the, here's the issue. Nehemiah, like all great leaders of history, realize that at some point they're not going to be around. And so if you're not going to be around at some point, you need to make plans for succession. You need to make plans to make sure it goes on. And he says in chapter 7, verse 2, I appointed my brother and the commander here of the citadel because he feared God more than most men. Now, what Nehemiah, I think, is saying in that little passage is, maybe not, it's not he feared God with all his heart. It's not he feared God necessarily to the level that I wanted, but he feared him more than most. And I need to turn this over to him and give him the ability to try. Nehemiah also still had responsibilities. When he was released by the king uh, to go back to Jerusalem, the the, the way it's worded, it doesn't seem like it's a full release for all times. He had to go back and serve his obligations. He got the wall built. He got the people back on the right track. And then, oh, I've got to go back and fulfill my obligations because this wasn't, I'm releasing you forever. I'm releasing you for now. And so... He turns it over to these people, and when he comes back, he realizes they haven't followed. But he really had no choice but to try to do that. that I, I went round and round. Does that answer? Yeah. You know, one of the things that you know, that you just know is that even when God's Spirit is moving and active and alive, there are some people that just miss it or get part of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Three hours. Next time I uh, I preach for 30 minutes, y'all think I could have you standing for three hours. Yeah. Six-hour worship service. We'll follow. We're going to follow that Sunday morning. We'll be here. 
we'll, those of you that come at 8.30, we'll just uh, we'll let you have a little time. Uh, you'll get a head start. And so those that come at 11 will be three and a half hours behind or two and a half hours behind. They'll have to make it up on the back end, but we'll six hours. Uh, that, now, I will tell you that most... You you know the tradition that a lot of and I, I don't I don't do this as a pastor, but it's not because I don't have respect for the Word of God, but that a lot of pastors will have the whole congregation stand while they read the Word, they'll read the Bible. And that comes from this passage of Scripture. Now, I, the reason that I don't necessarily have do that is because I, I don't think this one passage of Scripture anyway says that it's normative, that that's supposed to be the way it has to be done. I, I think it's a great thing. I don't have I don't think it's wrong to do that. I don't. You know, but it, I don't think that because it does it in this passage of scripture, it means that you have to do it that way at all times. There, there are some. There are not as many as you know. When I was growing up in my home church, my my pastor, uh, every time we read, we stood up, uh, and a lot of times we had just sat down. I mean, you know, you, you said the prayer. You know, they do the, they do special or something. He would get up and pray, and then he'd say, "All right, let's." So you're standing, and then you sit down, and let's just stand up and read the word, and so. Um, it's just a, a matter of respect, and so. Well, and you also have to realize they weren't sitting in pews either. They were. They were outside, you know. I mean, they were, you know. If we, if you go to the courthouse for uh, in a couple of weeks, if you know, or the National Day of Prayer, if you go to the courthouse National Day of Prayer, you're not. There's a lot more standing than in a normal because you're outside. There's just not. Well, you know, sometimes they'll have seats and stuff out there, but they didn't have foldable seats in Jerusalem back then. All right, anything else before we go to 1 Corinthians? Yes. What that, that was, in some ways, the extent that Hannah gives Samuel um, over for service to the temple if needed, basically just saying if, if, if you gave in service to the Lord in some way, to, in the temple for a season or in the temple for a, a while or in service in some way to the Lord, not necessarily... And that's a lot, but not more than that. But in the way that Hannah turned her son over to Eli, and, and that happened in similar ways to that. Yes, right. And that's where pulpit comes from and the prominence of the pulpit, the standing um, in front of people. And the reason that he had a pulpit is because he's about to read a whole lot. You know, I mean, he got up and read um, and there's lots of I looked at some of that. there's lots of discussion about what does that mean what is a pulpit what does that podium look like what does it mean um, it definitely would not have been as elaborate as a lot of the it, yeah that the being up higher would yes the platform up top the actual stand or whatever he would use you know uh, would have been probably very um, well, who knows what it was like but it wouldn't have been as elaborate as some that we have today. So, all right, let's go to First Corinthians. What questions do you have? First Corinthians. We'll do anything up until chapter eleven, where we are. So, chapter one through eleven. Some of you weren't here last week. First Corinthians. Yes. Well, yeah. They, they Paul's basic argument there is they ought to do it themselves. Don't take it to the heathen courts. I mean, you. Why would you? You know, he makes that argument. Why would you want to take it to an unbeliever to settle a problem between believers? So, we talked about that a little bit last week. How uh, 
there are going to be disputes within churches. There are going to be problems within churches. My issue with that becomes when it becomes a public fight, when it becomes newspaper, magazine, court system, television station reporting on internal church issues. That's the same thing to me as what they're talking. Because there, you would have gone out. I mean, you have to think. In, the, in their day and time, wasn't a whole lot of entertainment happening. Um, I, I couldn't help but think for some reason, I, I thought of To Kill a Mockingbird. Now, you know, that's one of my favorite books. And they show that movie, and the trial's going on, and the place is absolutely packed, right? And not with reporters, just with people from town. And, and you know, even in small southern towns, when a big trial or something was going on, everybody went to, to see it. It was the community event. Well, in Corinth, it was the community event to go stand and see what the judge was going to say. And so he says, you're dragging our name through the mud when you get up there and it's two believers, and everybody in town is watching you argue. Other questions in 1 Corinthians. Yes. <laughs> we talked about that a little bit last week, Miss Shirley. And I told her I would research it more, and I did. And I'm more confused now than I was when I started researching. You look at different places, they don't know what to do with that. Here's the basic idea that he's making, is that when we get into our eternal home, whether that be the new earth and the new heaven, wherever we are residing in our eternal home, we will have a responsibility in ruling and reigning with Christ over the new creation. So we will have ruling. Now, the question is, what does he mean ruling angels? The, the general consensus out there is one of two things. One is, that's just saying, when we get to heaven, our position will be higher than the angels. When we get into our eternal home, our position in relationship with Christ will be higher than the angels, mainly because Christ gave his life for us. Um, and actually, three positions. Another is, the, the word angel, we don't use the word angel any other way. But in the Greek, the word angel, which is alpha, nu, nu, epsilon, lambda. I know you all are excited about that. Angel means messenger. And so when you get to even Revelation, and it says, um, this is a letter to the angel of the church at Laodicea, most people think that's the pastor of the church of Laodicea because he is the messenger, God's messenger, for that congregation. So the word messenger didn't always mean heavenly beings that we think of angels. Okay? So some people say, well, that word just means messengers or God's appointed messengers, okay? which doesn't really clear it up for me either. And some say it will be that in our apocalyptic or end times when the angels and Satan are receiving their final judgment, the fallen angels, the demons. So, you know, right now, Satan is not in hell. He is here on the earth. He's the prince of the air. He's ruling uh, in some ways here. But it tells us in Revelation that there will be a lake of fire, hell, prepared for him specifically. And that there's in Revelation, however symbolically you take it, there's a final time when his final punishment is given. Okay? They say that we, as believers in Jesus and a part of his family, will be part of that judgment on the fallen angels and Satan himself. The point of that passage 
is if we're going to have that much responsibility in heaven and we're going to be ruling over unbelievers, why would we ever allow unbelievers to rule over us as far as making judgments? If we're going to be the ones making judgments about eternal destinations, why are we letting them determine who gets this ox? That's the point. There are lots of commentaries that skip that verse. Miss Shirley, is that some more information? That's in Romans. He does, you know, in Romans, that verse is there. And then, you know, in the New Testament, it's there a few times. Now, as believers, it's also important for us to notice that's there, but also the other things that are around it that are there. Malice and gossip and... Maybe not in that verse, in other verses. Malice and gossip and anger and drunkards and cheating and other things. We have to make sure we don't cafeteria-style the sins. Pick the ones we want to rail against or that don't apply to us. Other questions in 1 Corinthians. Let's talk about that whole passage for a minute. Because the Bible says if you're a woman, you're supposed to have a hat on. That's what it says, right? I don't see any hats in here tonight. Covering. Covering over your hair is what it says. Okay? And then it says guys don't have long hair. The point of guys don't have long hair didn't mean that no guys ever had long hair. You had the Nazarites that didn't cut their hair. The point was that in their Greek and Roman culture, long hair on guys was equated with uh, being effeminate. And so guys should look like guys and girls should look like girls. Now, let's get to the head covering thing. In their tradition, um, women always covered their hair in public. In fact, a woman with her hair down meant one thing, that they were available for anybody that was around. The only place women let their hair down was in the bedroom with their husband. Everywhere else, it was covered. In Paul's day, there was a new sexual revolution happening. That didn't happen just in the 60s, all right? Where women started working, walking around Rome and in Greek places and Corinth with their hair let down, saying, why? Because in that society, it was not looked down upon for men to have multiple partners. And they were saying, if men can do it, why can't we? So they would let their hair down and walk around in almost defiance in their culture. And it was considered risque. Um, one, uh, this was Dr. Ken Hemphill, who was, the pa- who was the president of Southwestern. I took a class on 1 Corinthians with him. And he said, in our society, it would be almost like a uh, woman walking around the streets of your town topless. And it was that risque. And so Paul gets this picture in Corinth. You have this picture. And you see it in the Lord's Supper. you got people that are drunk. I mean, they're getting together for the Lord's Supper. And you can imagine this occasion. You've got speaking in tongues going on. Drunk people, women with their hair down, a guy there that's living with his stepmom, 
and apparently people talking over each other trying to prophesy. So that's a little chaotic, right? And he says, and you got church members suing each other and going out into the public. He says, people aren't going to understand what's going on when they come in. How are they going to understand what's happening? And so he says, if a woman wants to pray, by all means, let her pray, but make her cover her head. It would be like today me saying, I mean, this just seems ludicrous, doesn't it? If you want to pray in church, ladies, absolutely, but you must be clothed. I mean, we don't, but that's what was going on in Corinth. It was like that. And so for Paul to say, women, cover your head, it wasn't like he was saying any restrictive kind of things. It was just be decent, be moral, make sure you're following the customs of the day when it comes to modesty. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, and I thought about that when I read that. We read that today or yesterday. Um, today, yesterday. I, I thought about that, and I just never went and looked at the, you know, you might get Wikipedia where yarmulke, the yarmulke tradition started. You can Google it. Bing it. Yeah, those, that's a yarmulke they, they hit on top. I don't really know. They wear it. I know they. I know there's some men that wear it almost all the time, and there's some men that wear it just for religious ceremonies or prayer. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. There's some Jews, depending on their on their faithfulness, they wear them a lot. So, I don't. I don't know the official yarmulke rules. What's that? They, they not 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 really anymore. But I will tell you that. This passage is behind, you know, I mean, many of you grew up in churches where women wore hats a lot. And we, we still occasionally have people wear hats, and there's nothing wrong with wearing a hat. But that that partially comes from this passage where they were, well, the Bible says if you're going, in the New Testament says if you're going to pray or you're going to be in church, you need to wear a hat. And so, yeah. Well, it, it got in both ways, and you had proper southern women wearing hats that were poking people's eyes out next to them, right? I mean, you know, it went both ways. I mean, it was interesting because in, uh, I don't remember what day it was, but um, in my first church, they had a day kind of set aside during the year when there was, there was a church of about 20 women. They all wore their hats. And they were, I mean, they were hats. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> for that day, and I never knew what it was, and so I'd walk in to get ready to preach. Whoa, what, is <laughs> what happened to the congregation today? Well, they, I don't know. Looked like a Kentucky Derby had broken out in church, you know. And th- this is one of those cases when you have to determine what is, when I say normative, I, I, I mean what, what is prescriptive or what is required for us today and what was cultural. And I think the cultural principle out of this is, that don't try to, I mean, dress modestly and be polite and respectful and not flaunting. And, you know, I mean, um, Paul will later talk about women trying to prophesy with their hair down. And so, you know, they're running up to the front of the church and hair down, yelling out things that God's telling them. You know, I mean, Corinth was a mess. I mean, it's just a mess. And so Paul is saying, "Listen, y'all, concerning this, you gotta, you know, you gotta control this. You gotta get this under control." I mean, he talks about the Lord's Supper here, and 
basically what was happening is at the Lord's Supper, the the rich people in Corinth got off work early, and they'd go to somebody's house, and they're having the Lord's Supper, and they'd all get drunk and full on the wine and the bread. And then the poor day laborers would come in, and there's no Lord's Supper stuff available for them. Well, why not? Well, we, we drank it. Well, it's not a feat. You're not seeing how much you can drink. It's the Lord's Supper, right? I mean, now it's hard for us to imagine that, thinking, oh, those little grape juice glasses? I mean, but that's not what it was like, all right? And they did not have, they had grape juice, but it had been, it had been fermented, right? And so, you know, they were, they were having another round while they were still waiting on everybody to get there for worship. Paul said, that cannot happen. Cannot. Yeah, spiritual. You know, you know we, we talked about last week that, that, uh, that, that Paul is writing here to a group of Corinthians. They thought they were more spiritual than everybody else. They called themselves the spiritual ones. And so Paul will say things about the spiritual life or you spirituals or you know, he makes comments in there. Well, man, I wish I was as advanced as you are, but I'm not. I, I'm humiliated all the time. I'm beaten all the time. I, I wish that we had already reigned with Christ. I wish we were already resurrected. I wish we were at this higher level, but I'm not. Maybe you are. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I didn't even teach you the deep things of the faith because you couldn't handle it. All you could handle was milk. You know why? Because you've got a guy in your church that's sleeping with his stepmom, and you're fine with that. What's wrong with that? You know, nothing wrong with that. And you're all getting drunk before the other people get there. There's inequality. There's favoritism. You're not taking the Lord's Supper seriously. You've got women immodestly running around. You've got people jumping up and yelling at each other. People are speaking in tongues. And this is in your worship service. God is a God of order and not confusion. Right? You see why that's in 1 Corinthians? When he says, I'd rather a believer be able to walk in, or a non-believer, and hear a couple of words of prophecy than a thousand words in tongues, because people are coming in not having a clue what you're talking about or what's going on. They can't make sense of it. Anyways, that was my soapbox moment for the night. Right. And, and here's, what I, here's what I was getting to with that. Well, we have to come out as the principle from it. So it's not whether or not you've got a hat on your head. The principle of it is, are you dressing in a way that is not distracting other people from worship? Okay. Are you dressing appropriately? Are you, uh, you know, in the in one of the letters to Timothy, he'll say, dress modestly, and that doesn't just mean cover up. He says, tell the women not to put their gold on. Don't don't get dressed up in gold. Don't get dressed up in your finest stuff, because you're distracting people. Because everybody's saying, man, look what they're wearing, right? Yeah. And there's nothing, you know, there's nothing wrong against wearing a hat. It's just. You know, are you dressing in a way that according... Now, here's the thing. If our social conventions ever go to where people are running around the streets naked, that doesn't mean, oh, well, it's all right for us to go to church that way. That, that's not what it means. But we definitely... What was happening in Corinth is they were pushing the envelope of decency in church. They were pushing society's envelope of decency in church. And so that's the principle we have to figure out. What's decent? All right, anything else in Corinthians? All right, we got one more week in Corinthians. So if you got questions, save them for next week. All right, Psalms and Proverbs this week. Anything in particular that stood out? Favorite proverb of the week or Psalm of the week? I don't know. I haven't heard it, Joyce. Here's the thing that if you read the Psalms consistently, there are many what they call imprecatory Psalms. And imprecatory Psalms are curse Psalms. Um, 
Lord, do this to my enemy. Lord, do this to them, you know. And we all, oh, that's David writing. But if somebody, like you said, somebody sang a song like that on the radio, we'd be like, wow, that's... And he prays destruction, not good. Yeah. Proverbs of the week, anyone like? Yes. It's Proverbs twenty-one thirteen. Those who shut their ears to the cries of the poor will be ignored in their own time of need. Today's Proverbs. I'm glad you mentioned that, Shirley. Not a man in here. Yeah, Proverbs 21, 19. It's better to live alone in the desert than with a quarrelsome, complaining wife. It's not, no. That one's the most extreme. The other ones are just on the corner of the roof. It's just out in the desert. You know, which goes with 21.17, which says, Those who love pleasure become poor. Those who love wine and luxury will never be rich. The idea of that's what you want, you're never going to get it. Yes. Here's the thing. I, I think that Nehemiah is just saying, Lord, you know, I, I think you do. But I think what you see in there is that that never brought pride or arrogance or a feeling of entitlement with Nehemiah. But he just says, Lord, I've done this. You know, I know you're not going to forget, but just remember. Yeah. He, you know, Nehemiah, all, all the great believers in the Bible you see, they talk to God like he's a person with them. They don't, try to, they, don't, they don't try to come up with the best words they know how to say or speak in ways they would never speak. They just are real. Now, to us, it sounds like they are because we don't talk that way necessarily now, but that's how they talk then. So, All right, next week we're going to talk about Esther. We'll have a whole week on Esther, whole 30 minutes on Esther. We'll finish 1 Corinthians, so any questions you have in 1 Corinthians, and then we'll move on to 2 Corinthians and talk the week after that, okay? We will not get into Job next week, but I encourage you to start Job. Because Job, Job is long. It's a, it's a long book. It's good, but there, there will be moments in there that, that will be a little tedious getting through. Okay, And so um, just go ahead and get going in Job. So don't say, well, we're not going to start Job next week. I won't worry about it. Job's not one of those books you want to catch up five days at once. All right? You know, some of these books it's been okay to catch up three or four days at once. I'm not... I'm not making any accusations, I'm just saying. But Job is not one of those books, okay? Job and Isaiah and Jeremiah, those kind of books. We're about to hit some longer books again. We've kind of hit some short books in the Old Testament. But we, uh, we'll be in Job. I mean, we'll be in... We don't get to the minor prophets. We will now be in the major prophets, basically, after when, when with Job almost till December. We start Daniel... At the, after Thanksgiving, or right at Thanksgiving. And once we hit Daniel, we will speed through books. Because Daniel, and then you have all the minor prophets of um, that come after that, of uh, Hosea, which is not very long. It's three or four days of reading. It's good. It's, you know, just a few days of reading. Amos, Joel, Obadiah, which will be a day. Jonah, which will be a couple of days. We'll get there. We don't get the Revelation till. That's in the New Testament. Yeah, we we won't get the Revelation till December. We'll finish it. We'll we'll finish Revelation on December thirty first. I can probably promise you that. And we'll finish Malachi on December thirty first. I know that. Or as 
They used to say in seminary, that's the Italian prophet Malachi. All right. So, all right. Have a great week.